few years ago, there was an interesting cover story in Newsweek magazine that hit the shelves around Easter entitled, The Decline and Fall of Christian America. And in this article, the, the writer argues that, that Christianity is no longer as influential as it once was. He says the way people used to view the world was primarily through a Christian lens, but he argues in this article that that is no longer the case. He goes on to make the argument that we are now living in a post-Christian America. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, Graham, it's Easter, okay? Don't bring us down with this news. We're supposed to be joyous and talking about the resurrection, and we're going to go there this morning, and we are going to be joyous. But, but I want to I talk about the resurrection this morning in a unique way. With this Newsweek article in mind, what I want to do this morning is I want for us to look at the resurrection from five different viewpoints, from five different perspectives. And, and though I do not believe these are exhaustive, I do believe these are some of five of the, the uh, major views from post-Christian America on the resurrection. And here's my goal this morning. My goal this morning is, number one, I want you to be aware of these different views that are common in our world today. But secondly, I want to prepare you for how to respond to these views when you encounter them. And then thirdly, what I want to do, my hope is, is that after this message, you will leave here with a better understanding of how essential this event is and that you will be encouraged to think more correctly about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, okay? So let's get started here. Let's look at these different views of the resurrection this morning. The first view is what I call the atheistic view of the resurrection. I know that sounds strange. But this view simply says this. There is no resurrection because there is no God. That makes sense, right? If you understand the, the belief system of an, of an atheist, you know that makes sense there. There is no resurrection because there is no God. Now, now some of you in here, I don't know, but some of you in here may fall into this category or you may know someone who does. This view is becoming more and more popular in our world today. In this Newsweek article that I mentioned just a moment ago, the writer appeals to a survey, and in this survey they ask people, what do you believe? And the article, the author of the article explained that the number of people that check the box, atheist agnostic, has increased from 1 million to 3.6 million in the past 20 years. So as you can see, though it's, it's not a large number, this number is increasing. So we need to be aware of this trend and know what they believe and why. Check out this clip here. And I love how, I love how when people watch, I don't know, David Attenborough or the Discovery Planet um, type thing, you know, where you see the absolute phenomenal 
majesty and complexity and bewildering beauty of nature, and you stare at it, and, and then and you somebody next to you goes, and how can you say there's no God? Look at that. And then five minutes later, you're looking at the life cycle of a parasitic worm whose job is to bury itself in the eyeball of a little lamb and eat the, eat the eyeball from inside while the lamb dies in horrible agony. And then you turn to them and say, yeah, where is your God now? You know, I mean, you, got, you, can't, you can't just say there's a God because the world is beautiful. You have to account for bone cancer in children. All right. Now, with this view, we have to look beyond the resurrection, don't we, to Fry's view of God. I mean, of course, he doesn't believe in the resurrection, right? Because he doesn't believe that God exists. Now, why does he not believe that God exists? Well, I'm sure there are, there are many reasons that he would give, but one of the ones given in this clip is one of the most common arguments that's made by atheists. Did you catch what it was? He basically said there's too much evil in the world to believe that there is a good God who is in control. Many atheists, when arguing against the existence of God, they appeal to this issue. They say, when I look at the world, though it's beautiful and though it's amazing, there is also pain in suffering and injustice and they argue that this is the Achilles heel of Christianity they argue that this is a problem for Christians did you catch what Fry said he said you can't just say there is a God when the world is beautiful you have to account for bone cancer in children and many atheists argue this point and they give this point and they conclude because of this point that God does not exist now here's what's interesting about this point I want you to get this atheists look at the world and they see evil and suffering and injustice and they conclude that is proof there is no God well guess what Christians do Many Christians look at the exact same problems, the problems of pain and suffering and evil, and they also look at the joy and pleasures in life, and they say both of these prove that God does exist. Follow this logic with me. If evil exists, then we have to assume that good exists, right? Or we wouldn't know the difference. And if good exists we have to assume that a moral law exists or we would have no way to measure good and evil. And if a moral law exists, we have to say there is a moral law giver or they were, there would be no basis, no authority to say one act is right while another act is wrong. You follow me? Let me go even a bit further to say this. If a person is a consistent atheist, if, if one truly believes that God does not ex exist, if they're honest, if they are consistent with their system of belief, they have to conclude that there really is no such thing as good or evil. There is really no such thing as right or wrong because if there is no God, there are no standards for why one should live this way and not live that way. Many atheists have concluded this very thing. They have. But here's what I think. I truly believe that deep down each and every one of us know that this is not a correct way to view the world. 
and though many claim to believe this, their actions prove otherwise. There's a story about a philosophy student who wrote a research paper arguing that there are no objective universal moral principles and based on the research and the scholarship and the documentation and so on this was easily an A paper the professor took this paper he took one glance at it and pulled out his red red felt pen and wrote F on the paper and the reason he gave is because he did not like papers with blue covers when the student got back the paper he was infuriated he stormed into the professor's office and he said, that's not fair. I should not be graded on the color of my cover, but on the content of my paper. And the professor said, oh, you, are you referring to the paper that you wrote that argued that there are no objective moral principles such as fairness and justice? And the student said, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the one. And the professor responded, well, I don't like blue covers. It's an F. Suddenly, the student realized that he did believe in objective moral principles like fairness and justice, and he was expecting them to be applied in his situation right then and there. Truth is, deep down, we know this is just not a correct way to view the world, don't we? Because all of us have this innate inner sense of right and wrong, good and evil, justice and injustice. When you hear about a child being abused on the news, or when you hear about a kid being abducted, we get mad, don't we? We get angry. We want these individuals found and brought to justice. We want good to triumph over evil, and we want to see wrongs made right. Where does that desire come from? It comes from the God who made us. Well, some upon hearing this will say, okay, well, if that's the case, then where does evil come from? They argue that if a good God exists, or if God exists... He must either not be good or not be in control because evil exists in the world. Well, guess what? We have an explanation for that as well, don't we? The Bible affirms that human beings are responsible, doesn't it? Check out this quote by Ravi Zacharias. He says, evil isn't just something outside of us that inflicts suffering on us. Evil is something inside of us that inflicts suffering on others. Some will respond by saying, well, but God created us. Yes, He did. He created all things, and He created all things good in the beginning. Like produces like, and God created us like Himself. And one of the ways man was like God in the beginning was that he was without sin. But man was also like God in that he was free. And through that freedom, man chose disobedience. And through that act of disobedience, sin entered into the world. And as a result of sin, death entered in as well. And as a result of that, this perfect world that God created got ruined and wrecked by sin. And the entire human race was contaminated by sin. And we can't go off blaming Adam either. 
Because Scripture is clear that we, in a very real way, were with Him sinning in the beginning. We, we weren't there in a physical sense, but in a very real way, we were there with Him. We are responsible. And we repeat the very sin of Adam day after day. Upon hearing that, some will say, well, okay, I'll give that to you then. God is good, but things getting messed up the way that they did through man's sin proves that God is not in control. That's also not true. God proves to us in His Word that He has always had a solution for the evil that we caused. Man was in a bad way, wasn't he? And though God could have left this world, and more importantly us, in this broken and fallen state, instead He chose to enter into this world and restore it and restore us and make us right with Him again he does this through the person and work of his son the Lord Jesus through his life and death and his resurrection the resurrection of Jesus from the dead proves that God is committed to making this world right once again the resurrection is proof that our God is going to redeem this world listen to Acts 17 verse 31 says this, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see that? God has given us proof that he is going to one day restore justice to this world. And the proof is not in the pudding, it's in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. So if this is your view, that there is no resurrection because there is no God, here's what I want to encourage you to consider this morning. Number one, does your view of the world account for both good and evil that you see in the world? Because Christianity does. Also consider this. If you have a deep desire for goodness and justice, to prevail, you have to admit that the resurrection sounds really good because it teaches us that there is a good God who exists who is going to restore things back to the way they should be. So if this is your position, there is no resurrection because there is no God, I urge you to reconsider this morning. I urge you to rethink this view of the world and re-examine God's gospel. There's another view of the resurrection I want to discuss with you, and it's the pluralistic view of the resurrection. Those who have adopted this belief system argue that even if the resurrection did occur, which many pluralists believe it did not, this does not set Christianity apart from any other belief system because they basically teach that all religious roads lead to God. In this next clip, a group of students are interviewed and they're asked two questions. The first question is, are all religions the same? And the second question is, is there a religion you ascribe to? Watch this clip. Most religions share uh, a desire for personal improvement. Um, most religions are looking for their followers to discover peace. Um, all have some sort of idea of uh, heaven or an enlightenment or some 
final stage you are desiring to achieve eventually? Like the masculine and the feminine, and that being the two basic sort of underlying energies, and there being Jesus, and there's always Mary in there somewhere, and then there's Shiva, and like these male and feminine sort of deities Every, that we pray to. Everything that I've seen from Kabbalah to Islam to Buddhism to Taoism, uh, Christianity, um, every religion seems to have some kind of basis uh, belief that uh, that there is a higher being out there, that there is something beyond our control as human beings, and uh, that we basically must adhere to this higher power. Um, I've been to church, baptized Christian, okay. and I there are some things with that church that I did not agree with. Mm -hmm. So I took some of the good parts of it, and yeah. I took some of the things that I was taught growing up, and pretty much created my own set of guidelines. They can have their beliefs, I'll have my beliefs. It's not like it's one's right or one's wrong, it's just whatever you choose to, you know, believe whatever gets you through the day, I guess. Alright. So this is, those were snapshots of pluralistic view that all religions basically teach the same things and all religious roads lead to God. Now, this is a growing position in our country today. There are a number of people who feel this way. In this survey that this Newsweek article is appealing to, they ask, what, what's your religious belief and, and the number of people who mark that they have no set religious belief, no, no set of religious beliefs, it has increased from 8% to 15% in the past 20 years. Now, some of you say 15%, that's not all that big, but it has doubled in the past 20 years. So this is on the rise. This trend is on the rise. What's happening is, in our country, people are becoming more spiritual, but they're becoming less religious in that they're not ascribing to any one set of religious beliefs and practices. Now, how do we respond to this position? How do we respond to the position that says, it doesn't matter what you believe, because all religious roads lead to God. Well, here's the main problem I see with this belief. Notice, this view is not an anti-Christian view, but is simply neutral toward Christianity. The atheists would say, many atheists would say, Christianity is wrong, and it's what holds us back as a society. The pluralists would say, if you want to be a Christian, that's great. It might be of some help to you, but it's not necessary. You see, it's neutral. Here's the problem with a neutral position. The types of claims that Christianity makes, the types of claims the Bible makes, the types of claims the church makes, the types of claims that Jesus makes, they, they do not leave us in a, in a state to be neutral. They don't. There is no room for neutrality when it comes to the Christian faith. Let me give you some claims that are made in the scriptures that demonstrate how radical this message is. Think about what Jesus claimed about himself in John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's bold, isn't it? 
Jesus says here, there is no other way to get to God but through me. That's bold. That's radical. That's an exclusive claim. Think about some of the claims that Jesus' followers made about him. Listen to Acts chapter 2, verse 32. They said, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. This is one of the major messages of the book of Acts. God raised Jesus from the dead. So a neutral response really should not come into play here, should it? Knowing these things. I mean, we, we all have to respond, really, be honest, we all have to respond in one way or another. We are either to accept it or we are to reject it. There is no room for neutrality when it comes to these claims. Imagine if I stood before you this morning and I said, I want you to know that I'm God. I am equal in person with God the Father. I have the power to forgive sin and have raised and, and have died and, and rose from the grave to make you right with God. Would any of you leave here this morning and say, you know, I really don't agree with everything Graham said this morning, but he's a good guy. And if people choose to follow him, I'll be okay with that. No, you would be running for the exits. And you'd be looking at other people and be like, what are you sitting there for? Let's get out of here. And that should be your response. And if I ever make those claims, you should leave and not come back while I'm still here. Here's the point. The, the types of claims that Christianity makes, the kinds of claims the Bible makes, the kinds of claims that Jesus makes does not leave us in a situation to be neutral. It doesn't. It's all or nothing with these exclusive claims. You either believe it or you don't. If your position is that all roads lead to God and that Christianity is helpful but not essential, I urge you to reconsider your position. I mean, think through the issue. It, it, is it really possible for you to remain neutral when it comes to Christianity? In your spiritual growth guide this morning, and for those of y'all visiting, that's the, the list of scriptures that you'll find in your bulletin. What you're going to find is I, I've placed some several uh, extreme and exclusive claims that Christ made about himself in there. And I urge you to, to read through these claims this next week and ask yourself whether or not you're on board with him or not. All right? The third view of the resurrection we're going to look at this morning is the liberal view of the resurrection. Historically, the church has always taught that there was a resurrection and that it was a physical resurrection, that it was a bodily resurrection, that Jesus died, he was in the tomb, and on the third day he rose and his flesh and his spirit have been united. It was a physical and bodily resurrection where people saw him and they talked with him and they ate with him and they touched him and, and, and they did all of these things with him. They were present with him after he rose from the grave. Now, it was about 200 years ago, around the 19th century, that a movement called theological liberalism came in and in response to the Age of Enlightenment, they said, we no longer believe miracles are possible. We believe you can no longer be a rational person and believe in miracles. And some people just abandoned Christianity altogether. And they embraced a new 
system of belief. But there were some who were not willing to completely divorce themselves from the Christian faith, so they attempted to modify and redefine Christianity to make it more compatible with these liberal views. So what they did was this. They started going through the Bible, and what they basically did was they either removed the miracles, or they explained them away, or they tried to redefine them to make them more compatible with their naturalistic view of the world. Check out this clip from Dr. Marcus Borg. He is a member of the theologically liberal group of scholars known as the Jesus Seminar. In this clip, he is going to explain his view of the resurrection. Check this out. I think they continue to experience him as a presence in a non-visionary way, as a presence in the community, as a presence in the breaking of the bread. And I think they continued to experience the power that they had known in him during his life as a historical person. The power of healing, the power to transform lives, the power to create new forms of community. Moreover, and for me this is critically important, I am convinced that these kinds of experiences go on to this day. To this day, many Christians continue to experience Jesus as a living reality. For as I understand things, Easter is not primarily about something spectacular happening to Jesus on a particular day in the past. It is about the continuing experience of Jesus after his death. This, in my judgment, is the historical ground of Easter. Love how excited he is about it. Uh, it's like Bueller, Bueller, yeah. Now, now some may hear the, the, the way Dr. Borg speaks here about Jesus, and if they don't fall asleep, they think, that's not so bad. I mean, he talks about Jesus' presence being felt, doesn't he? He talks about his power and his influence continuing today. He, he even says that many can continue to experience Jesus today as a living reality. But notice how he ends. He says, and I quote, Easter is not primarily about something spectacular happening to Jesus on a particular day in the past, but is about the continuing experience of Jesus after his death. The liberal view of the resurrection is a common view today. And it says that, that Jesus did not physically rise from the dead, but he lives on in, in the lives of his followers. They believe that, that the things Jesus taught and the things he stood for should inspire us today. That, that spirit of Jesus should live on in the lives of his followers. That's what Dr. Borg means when he talks about Jesus' presence being felt today. That's what he means when he says that his power and his influence continue today. Here's the main problem with this position. The main problem with this teaching is that the Bible teaches us that Jesus rose from the grave. He rose from the dead and he appeared to people. Think about Thomas who not only saw Jesus with the scars but he felt them. Think about Jesus' followers who, who ate with him. They ate broiled fish after his resurrection and before his ascension. Why does the Bible go to great lengths 
to tell us about the account with Thomas? And why does it give us the menu of a meal that Jesus had after his resurrection? You know why? Because God in his word is telling us that Jesus was raised in body. He could be seen. He could be heard. He could be touched. He had a digestive system. He was with his disciples in the flesh. Listen to what Paul says. I already read this earlier. 1 Corinthians 5, 3 through 8. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, As to one untimely born, Paul says, he appeared also to me. So Paul goes to great lengths here to say that there have been a lot of people who have seen the the resurrected Lord. He says he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. And he says most of them are still alive. In other words, if you have any questions about it, he's telling his readers, go find these people and ask them yourselves. And they'll tell you they've seen the risen Lord. Now, why does Paul go to great lengths to stress these appearances? Because he knew how important the bodily resurrection was. He knew how important it was for believers that this event happened. Unlike what Dr. Borg says, what happened to Jesus on that particular day when he was physically raised to life is essential. It's one of the most important events in human history. It's in the top three with the incarnation and the crucifixion. The New Testament makes really, really, really strong emphasis that the resurrection was physical, that it was actual, that it was historical. We are told more than a few times that it happened in real time, in real space, in front of real people. In fact, the New Testament makes such a big deal about the bodily resurrection of Christ that if you take this event away, the rest of the New Testament really doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? So if this is your position, that Jesus rose from the dead, but that it was really more of a spiritual resurrection than a physical resurrection because miracles are implausible, I urge you to rethink the issue. Study the message of the apostles. How they go to great lengths to make the point that they've seen the risen Lord. And then read the history books about how they put their lives on the line and gave their lives, many of them, for this message. I mean, think about that. If the resurrection had not occurred the way the disciples said in a physical sense, why would they die for something they knew to be a lie? Good question, right? I mean, they were getting killed because they were teaching that Jesus had risen from the dead. They were saying, we've seen him, we've talked to him, we've eaten with him. That's their message, the physical and bodily resurrection of Jesus. And that message was getting them killed. Now, if they hadn't seen Jesus in a physical sense, why would they die for something they knew to be a lie? How many of you know of somebody who would die or a group of people who would die for something they knew was a lie? Just doesn't make sense. Well, there's another view of the resurrection that I like to call the indifferent view of the resurrection. 
Check out this short clip here. If we were to find the body of Jesus in a tomb in Jerusalem today, and it was without any doubt the body of Jesus, would that destroy Christian faith? It would certainly would not destroy my Christian faith. What happens to bodies, I leave up to God. Okay. Here we have our fourth view. That was John Dominic Cross and another liberal scholar from the Jesus Seminar. And uh, I've, I've, you know, I've heard him make this comment before in other settings, but I've also heard this comment made within the church. I have. By some people, they, they, they say, even if the resurrection did not occur, I would still be a Christian. Did you hear him say that? He basically said, if they found the body of Jesus, that definitely wouldn't destroy Christianity for me. This is what I like to call the indifferent view of the resurrection. These individuals, they claim to follow Christ, but they say resurrection or no resurrection, it makes no difference to me. Maybe some of you in here have made that statement before. Maybe you fall into this camp. Let me tell you the problem with this view. This view reveals a huge misunderstanding of what Christianity is all about. Listen, if you take away the resurrection, you no longer have Christianity. You don't. Dr. Crossan is wrong scripturally. Scripture is clear that if Jesus is still in the tomb, somewhere in the Middle East, Christianity is sunk. It is. If there is no resurrection, there is no Christianity. Let's imagine you and I went out to eat lunch one day and you asked me what I was hungry for and I said you know I am hungry for a big juicy hamburger and I went on and on about it the whole drive over to Legends all right and I get in line and I'm ordering I'm getting ready to order and they're about to call my order in I say oh by the way hold the meat you look at me like I was crazy right be like what what are you talking about you didn't order a big juicy hamburger you ordered pickles and mustard on bread truth of the matter is you take out the meat you don't have a hamburger. Get this. The resurrection to Christianity is meat to the burger. You take away Christianity, you, you, you take away resurrection, you lose Christianity. That's the point Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 when he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. What futile means is useless and pointless. If if Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless and pointless and you are still in your sins. You see, this mindset, this indifference toward the resurrection, you know what it really reveals? It reveals that one is not thinking rightly about the Christian faith. Listen, Christianity is not ultimately about you being a good person. Some people say, well, resurrection or no resurrection, that doesn't matter. I'm still going to be a good Christian boy or girl and, and obey the Bible. Listen, that's not what Christianity is all about. Christianity is not ultimately about you being a good person. It's about what God has done for us because we are not good people. That's what Christianity is. New Testament Christianity is not ultimately about what we do for God, but is ultimately about what God has done for us. And if you take that away, Christianity is sunk. So if this is your position, that I'm a Christian, and I would be a Christian even if there was no resurrection, I urge you to rethink that. Rethink what's at the heart of your faith. Is it ultimately about you and your good works, or is it ultimately about God and what He has done on your behalf? I would go with the latter. 
There's a fifth and final view of the resurrection, and it's this, the biblical view of the resurrection. Check out this clip from John MacArthur. If he didn't rise, then there's no sense in preaching about his resurrection. There's no sense in preaching about his death because his death was all there was, and there was no divine validation in resurrection. All gospel preaching then is empty, useless, it is a sham, it is a hoax, there is no good news. Jesus did not accomplish our redemption, he did not conquer sin, death, and hell. And the angels lied when they announced that his birth, behold, I bring you good news of great joy, the news is all bad. Just another failure. Well, the implications of saying there's no resurrection are profound. If you say that men don't rise, then Jesus, who is a man, didn't rise. And if He didn't rise, then our preaching that He did rise is pointless. And our preaching of Him as Son of God and Savior is useless. Your faith is worthless, verse 17. The trust you put in Him as your Savior is meaningless. Believing in uh, Him as Lord and uh, confessing that and affirming His resurrection is useless if He didn't rise. The apostles preached a risen Savior. You believe in a risen Savior. That's essential to His accomplished work. That's the validation by God that His atonement was accepted. Either dead men rise, Christ rose, the gospel is true, the faith of believers is valid, and the testimony of the apostles is accurate. Or, dead men don't rise, Christ didn't rise, preaching is useless, faith is empty, and the apostles are liars. It's a package deal. Right. That's the fifth and final view. That's the accurate one. That's the right one. That's the legitimate one. Here's the thing. Like MacArthur said, if Jesus did rise from the grave, then He's everything. And if He didn't, He's nothing. Everything hinges on the resurrection. I encourage you to examine your life this morning. Examine where you are when it comes to the resurrection. Maybe you're here this morning and you're trusting in Christ for your salvation and you believe in a, a physical and bodily resurrection. Do you realize what that means? Do you realize that means your sins are paid for? Do you realize that means you are forgiven? Do you realize that means that you are restored to God? Do you realize that means you are a child of God? Do you realize that that means that Jesus is the king of your life? If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus and you believe in the physical, bodily resurrection, this is what it means for you. But you also need to ask yourself this morning, this is a good question to ask yourself, believers. Am I living in a way that reflects that reality? These things are true. Are you living accordingly? Here's the truth. The Bible teaches that Jesus rose from the dead. Whether we're living in a, a pre-Christian, Christian, or post-Christian society, that doesn't change the fact that He rose. 
doesn't matter what country you're living in. It doesn't matter what time period you're living in. It doesn't matter what you believe. That doesn't change the fact that he rose from the grave. The question you need to ask yourself this morning is this. Do I believe it? Am I trusting in it? And am I living like it? Would you pray with me?